This is Mouth Media Network. Amplify and connect. Food is about pleasure. It's about survival. It's about community. It's about appetites and how you manage them. Often it's about the domestic sphere, who's doing this work. Um, you know, there's just, I mean, it gives me chills, actually. There's so much significance in food. And so when you have a great book and there's food in it, it's it's usually a way into the heart of the book, like really the meaning of the book. You can always find it in the food. Food isn't just something to eat. Turns out it's also something to read. That's why Valerie Stivers, writer and columnist for the very respected publication, The Paris Review, has a popular column called Eat Your Words, and it approaches classic literature through its food. Valerie is able to cook up so many recipes drawn from the works of myriad writers. Coming up, a rare kind of conversation on using food as a lens to reading classic literature in a new way. Valerie shares how you don't have to have expertise in the culinary world to use it as a key for unlocking deeper mysteries about the human condition. How food is present well beyond the table and widely seen in the classics. How food can be a lens into storytelling and characters. And a look at how religion and food can both offer provocative insights into cultures and value systems. vast culinary landscape we share. We are all carving out a place for ourselves. Each of us, in our own way, is a one-woman kitchen. I'm Roseanne Gold, and welcome to my kitchen. Valerie, thank you so much for being with me today. I actually am a little nervous because usually there's someone sitting across from me who has been a professional chef or worked in a kitchen. And that's not why I invited you here today. I invited you because I'm such a fan. And I often straddle two worlds. One is sort of the literary and one is the culinary. And because of your gorgeous column in the Paris Review. Thank you. You're doing something similar, but from a completely different vantage point, because you mm -hmm. are all about literary, exploring people's lives through culinary, through food. Mm -hmm. And this is something that fascinates me so much. So I'm fascinated by your column. Ergo, I'm fascinated by you. <laughs> Thank you. And I think the Paris Review is great. In a funny way, I actually want to do with you what you do with your column. I want to know more about you, too, through your experience as someone who eats. So I have some curiosity, too, even how you came to create this beautiful column called Eat Your Words. Yes. So welcome. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you so much. We can start with you were telling me how you created the column and how it came mm -hmm. about. It's the most unusual one. But if you don't mind indulging me, can we start with your childhood kitchen. Where did you grow up? What was the kitchen like? And maybe who was there? So funny. Um, the column that I'm working on, I actually came from my 
house where I shoot my column. Um, my husband takes the pictures and I do the cooking. So it's it's very, and my husband, of course, has an actual job. So his <laughs> having to stay home or having to take business calls is all sort of done around this. And now I'm going to be cooking all day. And can you come running out and take a picture when something is ready? <laughs> um, so the writer I'm cooking from today is named Bruno Schulz. And he's a Polish, although it was the Austro-Hungarian Empire. Um, anyway, the point is that I was the lead of this column I'm going to be writing about my kitchen growing up and the kitchen that I grew up oh, in. So I had just described it and it'll be out <laughs> next next week. But um, I guess the, the non-Bruno Scholl's answer is that, um, you know, I did not have a foodie household or a foodie background in any way. I grew up, I was born in Atlanta and then my parents moved to Boston uh, when I was seven, I suppose, to so the suburbs of Boston. And, you know, I think it was a very ordinary American <laughs> suburban food childhood. You know, my mother cooked some and did some things well, but there were many, many times when she would say, McDonald's or Wendy's. <laughs> <laughs> and then my brother and I would fight because one of us liked McDonald's and the other one liked Wendy's. And we would drive down the highway with the two of us fighting and her yelling at us, like, just pick and they were across the highway from each other. So funny. I think for many people, they would think this was the ideal childhood. Right? <laughs> yeah, we also had we could serve ourselves breakfast, and there was a cabinet of sugar cereal at like child level. One of the low cabinets was full of sugar cereal, and you would get up in the morning and go and take a bowl and the milk and sit down on the floor in front oh. of the cabinet and open it up and just continually pour cereal, like making the milk sweeter. <laughs> sweeter as you ate the cereal. So, um, <laughs> you know, I mean, when I got to college, I had never, I had never heard of brie. I had never had an espresso, like uh, not, not a food person starting out. That is so interesting. And also, I think maybe I'm sure your parents were fabulous and probably really educated, but it doesn't sound like they cared too much about food or nutrition either, right? With Between the sugar cereal and the choice of yeah. uh, fast casual. <laughs> I think it was a different era. You know, yes. I mean, I think if it were now, my mother would probably be, oh, it's all organic. But, you know, at the time, <laughs> I just didn't, you know, she was a country person from the country. It hadn't, I mean, you know, not anymore, but she had not grown up with that kind of sophistication around food. Anyway, I think they also, they didn't think it was for children. Like if they went out to a restaurant, they wouldn't have taken a child to a restaurant. Like yes. I can remember the first restaurant I went to, but I mean, in the 1980s in the Boston suburbs, like children did not go to restaurants. They maybe went to McDonald's or Burger King. Yeah, no, I hear you. And I do think it's a very generational thing as well. Yeah. And maybe a little bit of a Boston thing. I went to school there. My okay. grandparents were from there. So it's a tiny bit formal, I think, in children maybe or not. It were not it so was, much part yes. of the yes. package. No. Uh, do you remember the first restaurant experience so well? Absolutely, yes. Because, I mean, you know, I, my, my mother will hear this and say, are you crazy? We did this and that. But <laughs> actually, no, I remember two things. There was a restaurant, there was a diner called The Varsity in Atlanta. So I was a small child and that I think it's still there. And it's like a, a notorious Atlanta greasy spoon. And so we used to go there and it was a huge treat and a lot of fun. But I also remember a Chinese restaurant that's still there called The Walk, which is on Route 9 and in, uh, going into Boston. Um, and it was a big thing. It was an ethnic restaurant. Nobody had eaten at an ethnic restaurant. Yes. <laughs> so I remember going to The Walk as this great adventure of we're going to go try Chinese food. And I had to have been 10, 13. I mean, you know, 
But these are such vivid memories. Um, I'm quite a bit older than you, but I remember going to Howard Johnson's and mm-hmm. thinking it was just like, you know, the end of the world, the bee's knees. And <laughs> I would want to go there for Thanksgiving. Yes. And my friend said, that's the saddest thing I've ever heard. But I thought it was just divine and the stuffing was great and you can get as much turkey as you wanted. And then later on, Valerie, I found out that one of the most famous chefs in the world was actually the executive chef there during that time. So, so I you think were kids right. have you had the You had the taste. <laughs> you, you were following your taste. Yeah. So you were not so involved with food. Were you reading about food? No, not at all. Not I mean, I didn't, I didn't think anything about food until... You know, I mean, I guess as a as a high school student and a young woman, unfortunately, like my thoughts about food were eat less of it and try to be skinny. Um, of course. <laughs> so I didn't really I started I, I coincidentally got a job at Time Out New York in the late 90s. And I was hired because I had fashion experience, but they were looking for somebody to top edit the fashion and restaurants sections. So I just got restaurants completely coincidentally. Yes. And um, that started my interest in food and restaurants and bars. I did all the bars packages for Time Out in the late 90s was sort of my thing. I think everyone would have killed to have that job. It was a great job for a person in their 20s. (laughs) But did you have a mentor? You know, it's a little hard to be just thrown into that. And this was when you were in New York? This was in New York. Time out in New York. I I graduated from college in 94. Where did you go? I went to Brown. I was a religion major. So... uh, (laughs) You and I have more in common than you realize. Okay. nice. Um, So... Moved to New York and then I got that job, you know, several years later. And it's a fascinating question because the person who sat next to me was Adam Rappaport, the editor in chief of Bon Appetit. And I wouldn't say he was necessarily my mentor because I think, you know, he took food very seriously then. And I was sort of walking into this job like, okay, (laughs) you know, like uh, knowing nothing about it. But I do think that his sort of clarity of vision was very clear even then. And you always, knowing him even then thought, oh, someday he should be the editor-in-chief of a magazine. Like I was super happy when he got that job. And I do think that he, by his proximity, taught me very much. Mm, What a great teacher to have. Right. (laughs) And and how long did you do that? And were there some outstanding moments for you in that job? Um, I was there for five years. And, you know, at Time Out, there are all these different sections. And because I was doing shopping and restaurants, I ended up doing travels. Also, like I moved around and did many different things throughout the time I was there. And, you know, I think the outstanding moment about Time Out was that for somebody who wasn't from New York, it really teaches you to appreciate New York because Mm. you spend a lot of your time you know, I've got a list of bars to go to. I've got a list of restaurants to go to. I need to go find this kind of cuisine somewhere out in Queens. Like you just saw wow. so much. And it was really fabulous in that way. Kind of a pioneer. But nothing so spiritual yet, right? <laughs> no. <laughs> we'll we'll no. get to that. Yeah. So you had this coveted job. What happened next? I met my future husband, And we ended up moving to Moscow. He's Russian. So he lived in London. I lived in New York. And the way that that ended up being figured out was that we moved to Moscow for him to take a new job there. And I went with him. And um, I had started cooking some working at Time Out, but only really very little tiny bit. But then in in Moscow, there was no takeout. Mm. One had to cook if you wanted to eat 
well, <laughs> especially at that time. I mean, that was the early 2000s. So now it's a truly fabulous food city. But at that time, it was not. Even 20 years ago, there was such a huge change in, in the uh, food culture in Moscow. Huge. Yes. Yeah. I mean, mm-hmm. Moscow has changed. I, I was I lived there in the mid 90s before I knew my husband oh, so se- even- separately as an interest in Russian and Russian literature, a whole different thing. But yeah, so I've seen it go through things and it's it's different, like you couldn't possibly believe. Mm. So when you started to cook, so it was uh-huh. a little bit of a necessity, right? If you yes. wanted to eat. Uh-huh. Were there many ingredients there? Who taught you? What were you cooking? Probably not eating blini and caviar every night, or perhaps you were. I don't know. Blini are very, very hard, and I have only just mastered them now. It's been like a lifelong, why doesn't this work? But, um, <laughs> uh, you know, I mean, Russia was amazing, just and I'm also going to write about this in Bruno Schulz, but, you know, going to a totally alien place, and it is very alien. Like, people would come to visit from London in that era. It's more Western now, and it is different. But in that era, people would come from London and say, I feel like I'm on on Mars. (laughs) Like, Mm -hmm. you know, I don't feel like it was a three-hour flight away. And it really... And you must have felt that way. Was it the most otherness that you ever felt up until that point? Yes, I mean, certainly. Like, it, it, Mm -hmm. you don't know what... These are two. I lived there twice, so the 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 truly dramatic part was when I was even younger. But you know, you don't know what it's like to be an American. You don't know what the qualities of your nation are. You don't know what the qualities of your language are until you have a outside perspective that you can sort of look back on yourself. Yes, and it's it's in a way sort of a return to childhood and a return to like the freshness of a child's eyes because everything is so different. So mm. it's, it's, you know, it's a profoundly interesting thing to do, especially to immerse yourself in a culture that's so different. Yes. What were you cooking? What do you remember? Um, well, they had, oh, this, I mean, uh, they had these huge markets. Um, so this, the supermarkets were weird and like, <laughs> Again, I'm conflating the periods a little mm-hmm. bit, but in the early time, they were still the cashier system. So you would go in and all the food would be behind counters and you would have to ask the woman for the food. And if you don't speak good Russian, you know, what are you going to get? Is she going to give it to you? Like, mm-hmm. you know, they can take advantage of you. When I was when I was young and really spoke no Russian, they used to steal my change. So I would go in with money and ask for something and like I had to point to it and she doesn't want to bother with what you're pointing to. And finally she gives it to you and you give her the money and then she just stands there. Uh, and you're like... <laughs> that sounds very scary, <laughs> very frustrating. And it's hard to say ripe pear in Russian, yes, I'm sure. Yes. Um, so when I was young there, when I was, I guess I turned 25 there. So when I was 24, 25 there, it was hopeless and I barely <laughs> ate and lost a lot of weight, but um, which was not bad to me at that time. But when I was there with my husband, we were not yet married, but we did while well. we lived there. Um you know, I would go to these amazing markets and it would be this huge open air plaza, you know, covered. Some of them were open, but covered. And um, all of this sort of incredible peasant food and food from the countryside and gooseberries and red currants and, you know, mm. things you'd never seen and all the pickles and then all the meat, you know, it would just be the carcasses hanging there and it's sitting yes. there unrefrigerated on a slab and, uh, you know, all the homemade cheeses and mm. then the, the mushrooms in mushroom season, all the fresh mushrooms. So it would just be astounding, all these things that you could try to buy and figure out what to do with. So it was the culinary equivalent of walking into Oz somehow for you then. Something else, mm-hmm. you had a completely different appreciation, transformation. I mean, the place had changed, mm-hmm. but you had too. Yes, I was I was ready to start trying to do things with with those ingredients and, um, you know, really starting to cook. And what is the outstanding dish you mastered? In Moscow? Um, <laughs> <laughs> sadly, the thing I remember of cooking in Moscow was 
like the comfort foods that we would miss that we couldn't get there. So, I mean, I did, I learned to make jam. I made amazing Russian jams when I was there. So really? that was something. Berries that, and. Uh, there was a plum. So there's a, a cookbook called um, A Present to a Young Housewife, which is a Russian cookbook. Oh. Um, from 1861, and it's the most oh. famous Russian cookbook ever. The, the cookbook author's name is Elena Malahovets, and um, it's like a tome. It's like this thick, and her, mm. you know, and she would have sections on everything. I mean, it's it's thousands of recipes practically, and I would have to painstakingly translate them. I mean, at that point, I spoke reasonably good Russian, but not enough. You know, I I speak good cookbook Russian at this point. <laughs> Very few people can say that. <laughs> so there's a plum jam that you took fresh plums and you like soak them in sugar water and variously boil them for like three days. You do different mm. things and you let it sit and then you boil it again. And when you're done, I mean, the Again, it's very Russian because the stone is still in the plum. Wow. So an American jam would have, you know, cut it all no. up and taken it out, but they leave the fruit. <laughs> oh, yes. <laughs> <laughs> they leave the fruit whole suspended in syrup, and the syrup is this incredible, like, you know, mm. pinky purple color, and it was so good. Have you ever made it uh, in America once you came home or any, um, an equivalent? I do make jam. Um, I make – I have not made any jam yet this summer, but there hasn't been any fruit yet. Um, but uh, I, I – have a summer house in Vermont. So I actually oh. came here to do this from Vermont. Oh, um, <laughs> Valerie, thank you. <laughs> um, and uh, in Vermont, we have only strawberries and we just started getting red currants, but like the minute I left. So um, I haven't done jams yet, but I do still but you will. Russian jam. Yes. Wonderful. So coming up, uh, you'll hear more about Valerie's new passion about food, but most importantly about her fabulous column, in the Paris Review called Eat Your Words. Darkness falls, mysteries unfold. Has the night cast a spell inside my Here's a cooking tip to share. It's for one of the most fabulous cookie recipes I know. And it's made from only three ingredients. Raw wonton wrappers, sweet butter, and cinnamon sugar. That's it. Preheat your oven to 400 degrees and place the wonton wrappers on a rim baking sheet. Using a pastry brush, brush with melted butter or coconut oil and sprinkle each evenly with cinnamon sugar. Make sure they're completely coated with the cinnamon sugar. Bake six to eight minutes or until just crisp. That's it. They're fabulous and great with a cup of tea. From my kitchen to yours, Give it a try and pass it along. Valerie, hearing about the Russian connection uh, makes me think a little bit about literary stuff. Mm -hmm. And that maybe is our segue to your talking about your amazing column called Eat Your Words in the Paris Review. How long have you been doing it? How did it come about? Sure. It is actually directly the segue because I originally had the idea that I would cook from Gogol because Gogol has just incredible food everywhere and it's always very weird. And I mean, it's like the the devil whizzes dumplings directly into somebody's mouth to tempt them. Um, you know, it's uh, the food in Gogol stories is just fabulous. So I had always thought it would be fun because of my interest in Russian cooking. It would be fun to cook all of these things from Gogol. Um, and so I originally proposed to, I had been a volunteer reader at the Paris Review. So 
I had a relationship there and I proposed to do uh, two months, eight columns just on Google if they wanted to do. Uh, <laughs> That's very niche. <laughs> I don't know why this made sense to me. Um, <laughs> and she said, my wonderful editor there said, um, well, I do like that idea. And if you can take pictures, you know, it would need to have pictures and we could do that. Um, but she said, um, maybe not all Google, but are there other books and I, I mean, I said, well, yes, I had, I had thought of some others already. Um, so I said, yes, I can easily do that. But I didn't know for sure if it would go on. And I didn't know how much really there would be in this project. Um, and it turned out after I had done the eight of them that I realized almost, you know, I mean, not every book has food in it, which is interesting. I mean, you'll, you'll read certain types of books. These are, we're talking about books that are, you know, great literature. They're all, it's only non-living authors. So it's all basically classic literature, literature of the past, more or less, that's established and has lasted. And um, so these really great works, things are not there accidentally. The food is not there accidentally. If there's food on the page, it has meaning. And you know, there is a huge body of, of books out there and um, enough that I could do this forever. I've been doing it now for, heaven help me, um, uh, I guess almost two years. Well, and it sounds like <laughs> you're loving it years. and I'm loving it. reading it. So. I, did, I did it every two weeks for the first year and a half. And then I have now stopped it. I'm doing it once a month because it's just so much work. And as I run through things that I've read, I'm now really having to read new stuff. Like I, I've gotten crazier about it too. So I, you know, when I started, I was like, oh, I'll just read one book of somebody's. But now if I've read one, then I want to read a couple more and I'll read a biography. So between the reading and the cooking and the writing it, it's a lot of work. And the books that you choose, how do you go about it? Only because it's, it's the sky's the limit, right? It's, so you um, must yeah. set some parameters for yourself. Um, you sometimes. know, my editor very smartly in the beginning said, this won't be interesting if you could just call the writer and get a recipe. That the writer, like the sort of the mystery of the exploration, the writer needs to be out of reach, basically. So that was the reason for the non-living authors, which has turned out to be a wonderful limitation that is really the only limitation you need in some ways. Um, and um, it's books that I like and that I'm interested in and that speak to me. It's, you know. And I noticed that, you know, you have women and men. Mm -hmm. So it's it's not about that at all. But I'm curious about the presence of food and its importance to the storytelling. And if anything else could substitute for it, if music was used instead of food. If art was used instead of food, I'm sure it wouldn't work at all. So it's a mm -hmm. oblique way of asking you, what is it about the magic and power of food that helps tell these stories? And and because this is what attracted you. So mm -hmm. it appeals to so many senses, right? It's just words on a page, but I think other mysterious things are connecting you know, I don't think I realized that when I started writing these essays, mm. but I realize it now. Uh -huh. You know, like it's been a it's been an a process of exploration, and I think that, I mean, there's so much to it, but food is about pleasure. It's about survival. It's about community. It's about appetites and how you manage them. Often, it's about the domestic sphere. Who's doing this work? Um, you know, there's just, I mean, it gives me chills, actually. There's so ah. much significance in food. And so when you have a great book, 
and there's food in it, it's it's usually a way into the heart of the book, like really the meaning of the book. You can always find it in the food. Mm. Yes. And most of the words you just used now were positive words. But mm-hmm. um, but when you mentioned something about Gogol and the devil. And, right, and right, right. So food can also represent gluttony and sin and overindulgence and the sort of the darker, the darker side. But I was uh-huh. happy to hear you say it was mostly, yeah. mostly positive. You know, I'm not usually attracted to writers who view it that way. And uh, who can we say? Dostoevsky, I wrote a column on Dostoevsky and Dostoevsky was a Christian and he was very ascetic and he did not approve of the appetites really. And the only way is that, um, you know, like the, the temptress, the sort of sexual temptress heroine in um, the Brothers Karamazov was this woman, Grushenka, who was, and Grushenka in Russian means little pear. So, um, <laughs> you know, and she was a tempting little pear there to like, you know, cause trouble. And um, hmm. when I wrote the essay, I was, you know, more sympathetic to Grushenka than probably Dostoevsky would have wanted me to be. <laughs> so, you know, because you're looking at it, you know, through a feminine lens uh-huh. and with some history, right? Some different measurements. Yes, I think. Yes, and that's why I'm loving the column so much, right? Yeah, thank you. Yeah. No, I mean, it is. It's you know, you don't want to say there's something wrong or bad about classic literature. But, you know, when I'm writing these, it's always fairly personal and it's uh, bringing it into what I think is important about life and literature. And so, and, I, and I'm very much a pleasure person and a sensualist. So. <laughs> Wonderful. <laughs> so when you get the, I mean, I have written some great food horror columns too, so I'm not against it, but there's, <laughs> there are writers who, uh, I don't want to, I feel really bad singling anybody out, but like, You know, Jack Kerouac Mm -hmm. is somebody that I tried to get into and started reading it. On the road? Yeah. yeah. And um, The the Town and the City, The City and the Town, the Mm -hmm. first one. Not sure. And I was just like, oh, I hate the portrayal of women in these books. Mm -hmm. Like, I, you know, I I understand that this mother figure is important, but I I don't want to engage with this. Another person I don't like, a sort of Dickens y, like, Mm -hmm. you know, perfect perfect mother, like, you know, female archetype that just doesn't resonate for me. And I'm when I run across those, I usually think, mm, I'm not going to cook from that. Yes. So the whole idea of food in literature is so appealing. But I think you will, as time goes on, and more food writers or memoirists or novelists embrace the world of food, we're reading more and more. Food seems to have a bigger place. Mm -hmm. Because back then, you know, food and eating in front of people was very, very private and very intimate and something a little maybe even naughty or even a class thing. Mm -hmm. So... Did you have you come across all of that? That's a huge problem. Okay. <laughs> Edith Wharton, a fantastic example. People will say, "What about Edith Wharton? They're always at dinner. <laughs> they never eat a bite. There is mm-hmm. not a single bite because that, those were not her concerns. And I think probably as a female author, you wouldn't have wanted to risk putting food on the page. Like you wouldn't want to be uh, women's sphere or unsophisticated or improper. So, you know, nobody eats. They they sit down at the table, they talk about everything and they get up. Garcia Marquez also, uh, for whatever reason, sit down at the table, lengthy banquet, everybody gets up and not a word is mentioned about what the food is. And also in Unfortunately for me, because I really like to cook like Thai and Asian cuisines, Mm -hmm. but classic literature in China, in Asia, 
was very high. And well, it wouldn't ever include the act of the actual act of eating. No. And maybe not even the preparation of food. No. Right. For the same Mm-mm. for the same reasons. No. So it's it's gating. I mean, you're like, well, I would love I've read everything Thai I can find being from a non-living author. Of course, now it's different. But if you're looking at people whose work is somewhat in the past, not a bite anywhere. So fascinating. Mm-hmm. Um, I noticed that your beautiful dress is has a wonderful design of fruit and flowers. So yes, I'm hoping it does. that wasn't accidental because no. it's really perfect for. <laughs> I mean, I knew it was not. Today. This is audio, not visual, but um. <laughs> but I get to enjoy your beautiful dress. Um, so here's here's sort of a big literary question: um, when you're reading about food, whose story is being told? Is it the character's story or the author's story. Is it a device to learn about the character or is the author, is it really revealing about them? Well, you know, I mean, I pretty much take it as the book on the page. You know, I wouldn't necessarily trying to think. It's sort of like, who's the narrator question? And is the food really related to the narrator or to the actual author? I mean, I think it's related to the narrator. I mean, you know, that's a, a, any book is expressing something about the author, right. but I think if you're if you're analyzing the text as a text, I would keep the author out of it, unless probably I'll think of a, oh wait, there was a great exception to that. But you know, I just I, I did uh, Entazaki Shange recently, mm-hmm. um, and I felt and she actually wrote cookbooks, so she included recipes. And in I was so excited to learn about her and yes. read this. Thank you. It was so lovely to to cook from her and to, and so this was the first time that I had been able to cook from the author's actual recipes because I bought her cookbook and she was a great cook. And she was clearly a woman who cooked for a family who did it fast. It was easy. I was like, I will, I know I could use this cookbook myself any night of the week. And it made me so happy. So that was something where I think very clearly her personality was in her books. But usually I stay out of that. It was a beautiful example. So, but the big question is, so if you're doing Google and all of these other authors, where are the recipes coming from? So you will read, I mean, this is like mm-hmm. the, why you're here. This right. is really the question. <laughs> so you will Great. read about some crazy esoteric or yes. very classic dish. Uh-huh. But how, how are you cooking it? Basically, I mean, I uh, I mostly, I I. I take recipes from other sources and will attribute it in the column saying it's Mm -hmm. adapted from it's usually not exactly the same but um sometimes it'll be my favorite recipe from a cookbook that i have i mean i've done Mm. you know my pie crust is from smitten kitchen so every time i do a pie crust i just link to smitten kitchen and a lot of it is that but i do make things up some (laughs) people i have to make things up or you know i did leonora carrington who was this extraordinary surrealist and i had to wildly make things up for her um which i had never done before and so I started this what that was it sounds very creative oh she had something I wish I had the quote but she had something that was like you know larks and I I ended up using pheasant (laughs) that (laughs) recipe was it in 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 grape leaves um was it lark no it was in Apicius has a recipe all the way back to something like that yes I did an ancient Roman one which was interesting (laughs) too um the dish was some crazy thing with uh lark and pheasant and melon and so I combined from a David Thompson recipe, a English chef who does Thai that I like very much. I combined from a David Thompson recipe, and then I just made it up and used pheasant instead of something else, something else, and really just like went off and did it. And I made an enormous rhubarb tart that I made up just from my knowledge of tarts. <laughs> um, and the food was incredible. 
It was so good. It was one of some of the best food I'd ever made. And I was really like, you know, Leonora Carrington has come and like inhabited me and my kitchen and made this happen because I can't do this. I've never done this on my own, but it was really special. So so in spite of yourself, you are becoming an amazing cook I am through experimentation, much practice. Yes, I am. And, and uh Desperation. Yes. Yes, all <laughs> of those things. All of those things. That's that's usually how it works. Well, yeah. I do want to say that um, you are one of the reasons that I'm taking a little sojourn to visit Colette's home. <gasps> oh, <laughs> well, it's kind I of want to do that. Okay, so come. It's kind <laughs> of a long story, but I have a friend who had a very important bookshop in Vancouver, uh-huh. and it was one of the most important uh, cookbook shops in the world. There's another famous one in London. Uh-huh. And she was never married, no children. And she had this fantasy that she wanted to open up a bed and breakfast in France. Mm-hmm. And she did <laughs> this month. Uh-huh. And it's in the Loire Valley. Yes. And it's about an hour away from where Colette lives. So I said to her, I just read this wonderful article. So we're going to go. That is In your amazing. honor. I'm so <laughs> extremely pleased. I was, I was just in Paris and I couldn't, I mean, I, I was for a friend's 50th birthday. So I had to, I could not take a little side trip to Colette's, the Colette Museum, but I would have really liked to. Yes. So I will let you know all about it. Uh, Thank you, Valerie, so much. So coming up, Mm -hmm. uh, we'll talk a little bit more about, about the column and some of your favorite authors and what's coming up next for you. Wonderful. Follow me on Instagram at Roseanne Gold. And check out everything I'm up to on my website at rosangold.com. Valerie, I'm so interested in your choice of major when you went to to Brown, Mm -hmm. uh, that you were a religion major. What kind of prompted that? And uh, how did you see that manifesting later on, maybe as a job? Or not? It, I well know. I mean, what I th- I think I knew that um, any kind of humanities degree was not going to manifest as a job. So it seemed like it didn't matter which one you chose. If it was going to yeah. be English or complete or religion, you could just do the one you you liked. But it is actually very interesting because the reason that I liked religion so much was not that I was raised in religious in any way, but because it seemed like one of the most interesting ways to study life because mm. you were learning about history, you were learning about literature, and you were learning about how people interpreted what their world meant, and what they cared about and valued all at one time. So it was just an extraordinarily deep and interesting thing to study. And it was I mean, I took almost all I took, I had a women's studies minor and a religion major. And I took some semesters, like mostly religion classes, because I was the best. (laughs) Because you were enthralled. Mm -hmm. Uh, Do you remember anything standing out for you in particular, religion that you was something completely new or something that really spoke to you? You know, there was a early Christianity class that focused on the saints, and mm. the saints were all so extremely weird and, um, <laughs> you know, like horrible physical tortures, and they lived on a pillar or, like, lay on boards of nails and, you know, just the things that these saints would do to themselves. And then the way people fetishized their body parts and the part, you know, mm. carried around their teeth. And, you know, just it was it was awesome. <laughs> it's amazing what man can create, isn't it? Yes. <laughs> so I like that. Interesting. And the saints were mostly men? There were some women. Some women. I mean, this was a long time ago now, but um, yes, there were some women. 
I mean, the saints, you know, you'll see the, like the saint who carried his head around and there'll be sculptures. There's a, there's a word for it. I forget the word now, but um, all of that stuff is really interesting. So religion can do all of the things you just mentioned. And I also loved religion. It was one of my favorite classes actually. Um, But the way you described food earlier is is exactly the same. same. I know, right? (laughs) That's why I said it's a good question. That's funny. So there's the the connection. And, um, you know, there's, I am researching now this idea of food and spirituality and Uh food and nourishment. And uh, I'm also an end-of-life doula, so I look at what spiritual nourishment is in the absence of food. So it's all very connected and very, very Uh interesting. So um, the question about your own children. You have two children, Mm -hmm. and I'm very curious what they eat and if they like food, and if food is part of um, a bigger part of your life as a family, or is it kind of resembling what you had when you grew up do your kids eat sugar cereal on the floor no (laughs) no no they don't um you know i think what i've learned about being a parent is that the theory of it matters almost not at all and the thing that really matters is the daily grind of it and uh, you know there are so many are you a free range parent what you know what what age do you do the ipod do you (laughs) you know sleep in the same bed there are all of these like sort of philosophical questions and like none of that matters and what actually matters is like you get them up you feed them you make sure they're dressed to go outside you put you know you protect their skin like all of these just very simple Mm. matters of care and I think food getting them to eat healthy regular meals is the most it's an enormous amount of work and is the most one of the very most important parts it sets them up for every single other thing they're going to do with their days so I cook healthy food for them every day and make them eat it and they resist. (laughs) (laughs) That's That's part of the challenge. And do you tend to sit down as a family every night and have dinner? Because that's like a dying art somehow. Um, You know, I so never did that as a child and we still don't. And my husband won't be there because he'll be so still at work or something. So, um, you know, some, but I do, you know... I, I do a fair amount of like, hey, dinner's on the table, come over here, and they eat it, and I'm still running around doing something else. It would be nice if I, you know, I wish that I, I, I have a table setting thing too, so um, I wish that I What did. does that look like? Um, well, you know, all of, <laughs> And what does that mean exactly? <laughs> all of these dishes and things that I'm using for props in this, in these photos are things that I own, and I collect vintage dishes, and I actually spend a fair amount of work on in my country house, making the table settings beautiful and having everything, you know, sort of come together. So I wish that I did that more casually for the family. I do it to entertain and not, you know, the children are not eating uh, their healthy little meal on a perfect uh, visual (laughs) place the way it might be nice if they did. So this is feeling very aspirational. There's a lot of creativity, a lot of beauty in that. You know, I mean, I said before, like, I think that... uh, I wasn't a food person growing up, but I've kind of always been a pleasure person. Mm. And I think that there's so much that you can do with your daily life that will make your daily life so much better. And it's really, I mean, it's not impossible. It's not, the the bar is not that high to cook nice food and set it up in a pretty way. And I I enjoy doing that and want to do that. Do your children have two favorite dishes that they love that, oh, that you know they're they're, they're very simple children eaters and they are 
totally spoiled and are like, you know, popovers again. Popovers. Okay. <laughs> like you children have no idea. <laughs> Do, did you ever make uh, fresh popovers and break them open and pour warm maple syrup in them? I do that all the time. I had a friend from Vermont who taught me to do that when mm-hmm. I was very young. Um, so the question is, what does one woman kitchen mean to you? You know, I think that my first thought about that is that it's never one woman kitchen, really. Beautiful. You know, like food is not one person and you're always trying to connect with other people. Like you're actually putting something in somebody else's body. Like, you know, it's it's an intimate thing to do. It's a, a nourishing thing to do. I mean, there's so much that you are doing. In some ways, you are the person doing the work. It's a giving thing, you know, like you're the person who is doing all of this work behind the scenes to bring out something that someone is going to eat. But, you know, I think you're not focusing on yourself, really. That's so beautiful. <laughs> And unique. No one has shared that before. And the idea of putting something into someone else's body Uh also feels a little bit spiritual and religious in Um, a sense and very, very beautiful. Yeah, no, I mean, I think, I mean, I, you know, I didn't grow up religious, but I think that, you know, what even people who are not in a formal, I think the, I think the idea of grace resonates in people's lives, even if they're not going to a church or having a belief in a specific God. And um, I think that there's like, that that feeling of feeding somebody something wonderful, you know, it's just one of the most satisfying things you can do. And you do have achieve a state of grace in some ways. So one woman kitchen really might be grace. (laughs) Thank you so much, Valerie. And how does someone get to read you in the Paris Review? You know, the column comes out once a month. And if you search Eat Your Words and Paris Review, the page comes up where there's the column archive. And there are a lot of archived pages now because I've been doing it for a long time. So I think that's the best way to do it. I'm also on Twitter at, I think it's at Valerie Reads, and I promote them. The Paris Review promotes it on Twitter. So um, if you look for it, you can find it. Thank you so much. Thank you. And thank you to all of you for listening to me and Valerie eat our words (laughs) together and for being together in my kitchen. Thank you. Thank you. One Woman Kitchen is produced by Mouth Media Network. Copyright 2019. Follow me on Instagram at Roseanne Gold and check out everything I'm up to on my website at roseannegold.com. And if you're wondering about my beautiful theme music, it's called The Garden. Written and performed by award-winning singer-songwriter, Audrey Appleby. Thank you for listening. This is Mouth Media Network. Amplify and connect.